Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. I'm, uh, I'm loving the variety in the, in the jerseys today. Did you not get the memo? You got the, oh, you got it. You, oh, my bad, my bad. You got it. He's good. Different sport. Okay, I understand. The, uh, we are in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19 today. And don't let that scare you. We're going to move pretty quick through that. So, uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. And today's setting is about 100 years after last week, um, approximately-ish, the uh, construction of the temple where Solomon put that together and uh, dedication of the temple and all those things. So this is, we are several kings into the monarchy of Israel at this point. I think, I think Ahab is number 10-ish or so. And um, the kingdom is already split into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ahab's in the northern kingdom. Um, and just as always, God has got somebody and a group of people that are still working through and moving through with his plan. Um, and for me, the text today really speaks more about uh, God's plan will be done. And here's your first blank if you're taking notes on the handout at your table. And he will encourage those that do it. He will encourage those to do it. He, God really uses a variety of, uh, of, of means to pull this off, and I think we see that in today's text. So 1 Kings chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So the first question is, where is Samaria? Right? Is that the, the center of Israel? And the answer is, Nope, it's not, right? So you have this king who is not ruling from the place where David set up uh, for the kings to rule from. So verse 30, and it said, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So sometimes the Bible is low-key in the way it foreshadows, and sometimes the Bible is pretty blunt. This is the pretty blunt. So verse 31, And it came to pass as though it has been a trivial or a light thing for, walking, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife... Jezebel. Okay. Anybody know what Jezebel means? If you, if you, what her name actually means? Anybody know? You may have like a footnote in your Bible. See if you got a footnote in your Bible. You should not be pointing fingers at this point in the room. Let me just tell you that, guys. Okay. This is, wow. I'm surprised she didn't stab you with it, Doug. So. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I was like. Dude, you're, 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 <laughs> I'm going to ease over here because fire is going to come down from heaven. <laughs> okay, so what does Jezebel mean? Anybody see it? Anybody have a footnote? I heard skank. No, that's, that shouldn't quite be, I don't even know if the message would go that far. So, um, It actually means unchaste. All right, so if you're going to take a bride, her name is unchaste. All right, so this, this kind of makes sense if you if you let me walk you through it real quick. So, uh, Jezebel's god was uh, Baal, and we hear about Baal all through uh, this text today. And her daddy was actually a priest of Ashtaroth, and Ashtaroth in the uh, Tyridian Sidonian mythological structure, Baal was the man, Ashtaroth was the the woman. They were not married, but they were uh, they had much relation. Baal was considered, we don't have any kids in the room today, right? We're good? Yep, okay. So Baal was considered to be the uh, fertility god, the god of rain, the god of the crops, things that would grow and produce. 
So Baal and Ashtaroth would do their thing. Baal was a bull god. He would dance through the clouds and would rain down. The earth would produce and you would offer up sacrifices and offerings to Baal so that you would have a good crop and a good season. Well, there's a fundamental problem with the whole offering system. Um, if you take the Bible that clearly lays out this is what you should sacrifice and when and how much, if you take that and you set it aside, right, then how do you know how much to sacrifice? Okay. So let's say you had a good crop last year and you take some of that grain and you sacrifice it, you burn it up on an altar to your God and you have another good crop. Well, next year, do you do more? Do you do the same? Let's say you have a bad year. Well, that means what you did last year wasn't enough. So you do more. You take an animal and you sacrifice it as well. Let's say you have another bad year. Do we do two animals? Do we do five animals? What do we do? You see where this is going, right? You, you never know what the standard is because when you take the Bible out of your life, you don't know what the standard is. So this process degraded to the point where they had a bad year one year and some idiot came up with the idea, we should sacrifice our child. So that's what they did. The Baals were associated with child sacrifices. So what happens if you sacrifice your child and it's a good year that year? Maybe you need to do it again next year. So this is a, it's an unbelievably awful pagan religion. And her daddy was a priest in this religion. Okay, so Ahab knew exactly what he was getting when he picked Jezebel to be his wife. So he was king of the Sidonians, and Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32, then Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which Ahab had built in Samaria. So at this time, this is our, our comment, our green text here, it says, during the reign of Ahab, the worship of Baal was officially installed as the national religion. So this is it. We are no longer worshipping Yahweh. We are no longer worshipping Jehovah. We are no longer worshipping the Lord. We are worshipping the Baals. So this is how far we've come. This is a little less than 100 years from the time Solomon took the throne. Okay? A little less than 100 years. That's really scary. That's really scary. So verse 33, And Ahab made a wooden image, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And verse 34, And somebody look up Joshua 6.26 for me. You can just turn there real quick. Verse 34, In his days Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he, he set up its gate according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if you know your Bible history, Joshua is way before the kings, right? This is, this is a long time ago, hundreds and hundreds of years before. And what does Joshua 6.26 say? Somebody who's got it. Cursed is the man who rebuilds Jericho. Remember, because Jericho was this stronghold. Jericho was this place where the Israelites marched against it, and it fell, and it was a great and victorious battle for the Israelites, and it was this tribute to what God could do. And if you went back and you rebuilt the structure of the enemy of God, what does that say about where you are? Well, you're not on God's side. And he prophesied that he would lose his son and his youngest son, and when Hiel rebuilt it, he built it with his son and his youngest son. So hundreds of years before, God is still weaving through this theme of I will do what I said I will do. 
This is this constant thing throughout Scripture. So chapter 17, verse 1, And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab... Now, those of you that know Scripture, when, when a new character is introduced in the, in the story of Scripture, what do we typically... What's one of the first things we find out about them? Who's their daddy, right? Because who's your daddy is really, really important question in the Old Testament because it determined what part of the land you were associated with. It determined what tribe of Israel you were associated with. Do we hear any of this from Elijah? Not really. We don't know who his daddy is. We don't know who his mom is. He's kind of like Melchizedek in Genesis. He just drops in out of the air and shows up and he starts doing his work. Um, and sometimes God uses people that don't have a family that's worthy to talk about. And that's okay. So we just jump in, and, and Elijah says to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be a dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, what was everybody's job at this time? Everybody was a, everybody was a farmer. How many of you ever tried to grow anything? Some of you are like, yeah, kind of, but I don't want to admit it because it was awful. It just didn't work, right? Um, so today's Father's Day, so I'll talk about my dad for just a second. My dad believed that if you could grow it, that was good, but if you could grow it bigger, that was better. So we used this product called miracle Grow. So dad would take the recommended dosage of miracle Grow and multiply that by about five. <laughs> I kid you not, we had cucumbers that looked like this. It was... It, <laughs> It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. We would go, he would plant these rows of green beans, right? And my sister and I would get out in the summer, we'd go pick green beans. The next day, we had to go do it again because he's watering them down with miracle Grow three times a day, right? It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. What's that? That's why I'm so hairy? Worked out well for me. Okay, I guess. Um, I didn't see that one. I have like nowhere to jump off of that from. That's just, that was awesome. You got me. Completely and totally squirrel comment. Nowhere to go. All right. Yeah, your family didn't do the same thing, right? Yeah. That's good. That's good. So Elijah walks up to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And this poses a problem for Ahab because that's how we survive. They didn't have... Uh, food line and Bilo and Walmart, you grew it yourself. And if you didn't grow it yourself, you bought it from somebody who grew it themselves. So this is a real challenge. So verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows in the Jordan. It will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And I, I didn't read that wrong. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So who made the birds? Who do you think is in charge of the birds? It ain't Alfred Hitchcock, let me tell you that, okay? It's God. And if God wants to tell the ravens, go take the food to his servant, guess what the ravens are going to go do? They're going to go take the food to his servant. So here's the blank. Never underestimate God's creativity to sustain. Because those of you that have been believers for any length of time at all can look back on your life and go, you know what, there is no rational explanation for why this happened the way it did. That's just kind of got to be God, right? And he used some modern form of a raven to sustain. Um, so here's my question. What kind of God sustains a prophet with ravens? My Jehovah does. 
That's who my God is. So verse 5, so Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. And this is a theme that we'll see in this text is that God tells Elijah to do something and immediately he's on it. There's no delay. There's no lag time. There's no, any, there's no rebuttal. It's just we go and we, go, we do it. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. So Jehovah is an on-time God. And apparently he doesn't care much for lunch either. But because he got breakfast and he got dinner, but I guess lunch wasn't important. So he's an on-time God. In verse 7, it has happened after a while that the brook dried up. So let's put our modern theology into this setting, okay? Because our modern theology that we look through the world with is if something bad happens to us, then what? Then obviously we're out of the will of God, right? Obviously we're out of the will of God. So he is being sustained by this ridiculously creative, miraculous thing of drinking out of a brook and the birds coming and feeding him every day. And then the brook dries up. So what do we think? We think, well, I've done something wrong. I've sinned. I'm out of God's will. Is there any indication of any of that in the text? No. Sometimes junk happens because there's junk going on around. Okay? The garbage that happens in our nation today impacts us because we live in this nation. Right? It's just because we're here. That's the way that works. So, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. I have commanded a... Exactly, right? A widow? (laughs) A widow to provide for you. So, So, if you know anything about the Old Testament... There are certain groups of people that can't do anything on their own. There's two very specific groups, widows and orphans. You've heard this before. That's good. So the widows and the orphans. And there was a, at this time in the Old Testament, God had set up a, I'll call it social security system, for the widows and the orphans to be fed. When the farmer would harvest his crops, he would not harvest the corners. He would leave the corners alone because the widows and the orphans needed to eat too, and they were to go out and to work, okay? They would go out and work and harvest and provide for themselves. But the men of the community were to leave something for them to harvest, okay? So apparently in God's economy, rounding down for your own benefit is okay. So, in this economy, with Baal set up as God, do you think that the men of this economy are adhering to all of the word of the Lord? Not so much, right? And we see that. We see that because the men did not stand up and follow God. We see that in that this widow does not have enough. Okay? So, I don't want us to miss that. So, verse 10. So, he arose and went to Zarephath again instant obedience. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, please please bring me a little cup, a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was getting it, he said, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, as the Lord who? Your God, right? Don't forget the, the pronouns are important. I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am making 
I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Well, at least he was positive about it, right? We're going to go die now. This is our last meal. Here we go. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear and go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. God always gets his first. Always. And bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, until the day of the Lord, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So Julia McKay, I have a question for you this morning. How much would you pay for a gallon of milk that never ran out? Think about that. That's right. He's, he's put the equivalent of a kid through college on milk that he has to keep fresh in the house because she wants like five gallons at a time in there to make sure everything's good and it's all great. So think about this, ladies. What would you pay for a gallon of milk that never, went, that never ran out? That'd be kind of awesome, wouldn't it? Really, right? So Okay, so guys, think about this. What would you pay for a half gallon of ice cream that never ran out? Right? <laughs> be like, praise Jesus, right? What kind of God gives this thing away? What kind of God gives a gift like this away? My God does. That's right. My Jehovah does. So, so what happens next? Verse 15, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. Praise God for people that just do what God tells them to do, right? And she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Guys, God will always do what God says he will do every single time. So verse 17, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? So again, look, looks like she's got a little bit of our theology Right, This do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Thank you, Dave Barber. The best way to describe that. Because she's got something in her past that she instantly thinks of and says, well, I've, this is God coming back to get me for this. Right? So, so what happens? And he said to her, give me your son. So she took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord and said, O my Lord God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times, and he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. So what kind of God brings the dead back to life? My God does. He sure does. Now, I don't want to confuse you with something here. I don't want to confuse you that, um, that God is good here because the child came back to life. Okay? If God had chosen to let the child die, God is still good. And this is hard to wrap our American brains around because we have this quid pro quo God. This God that if I do good, then it's good in return. If I do bad, then there's bad in return. So verse 23. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Now, do you think that our pastors ever get discouraged? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think Elijah might have had some discouragement at this point in his life? He feels like he's all alone. He has gone to exactly where God told him to go, and the brook dried up. He's gone to a widow woman's house, and the child died. And then now God is encouraging him through raising up this child again and through the words of this woman saying, You are the man of God. See, God has got to get Elijah where he needs to get him so that he can go do the work. God is not going to leave us alone. So there's a, there's a neat little blank here. It says, Sometimes God will use someone to bless you so you can be a blessing in return. Because Elijah needed food, right? So he went to a place with very little food, and God provided. And then God turned that back around and used Elijah to bless the widow woman by bringing back her son. So 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, so it's been dry on the earth, three years in this period, right? Three years. So what do you think's happened to the crops? It's not good. And he said, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. Instant obedience. And there was a severe famine in Samaria. So let's think about this for a second. What did I tell you before Baal was the god of? Rain. I bet my god can beat up your god. I bet he can. Julie, can I get a marker real quick? So what's about to happen here is God versus God. Thanks. I want to be very careful how I spell this because the spelling is... Oh, there was actually one over there. The spelling is important. Okay. What's that? Absolutely. The oil and the flour have not stopped yet. Yeah. They, we don't know how long that lasted, but that's what God does. So, so what happens next in the next few verses is Ahab is looking for a place to feed his animals because all of his grazing land has dried up and withered away. And he meets up with Elijah. So let's skip down to verse 17. And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to Elijah, Is that you, O troubler or disturber of Israel? Because Ahab still has not gotten it. He still has not gotten that he is the problem. His lack of leadership is the problem. He thinks that Elijah has cursed Israel. Right? Because sometimes the messenger is the problem when we're in sin. Because we, we don't want somebody to get up and go, You're the problem. And it's hard to hear. So verse 18, And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now you'll see this uh, little... I'm going to get in the bug dust here for a second. You're going to see this God's name spelled a bunch of different ways in the Old Testament. It could be Ashtaroth, it could be Asherah, it 
could be ASHERO, lots of different things. Anytime you see A-S-H-E-R and then something else after it, bad guy, okay? Anytime you see A-S-H-E-R and that's it, good guy, okay? So two different things. So the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah asked for how many people to show up? 850 people to show up. I know it's early. We can still do math. It's okay. He asked for 850 people to show up. And Elijah, and here's something I want us to understand. Elijah is not disrespectful to the king. He plainly speaks the truth. In a year of political election, Elijah serves as a great example to us. He is not disrespectful to the king. He disagrees. He is not rude. He is not arrogant. He plainly speaks the truth. And we would be wise to follow. Okay? All right. I'm off my soapbox. Verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? He sounds like Moses, right? And Joshua. You got this hand and this hand. Which way are you going to go? Because in reality, there are only two choices in life. There are only two choices in life. To either follow God or not to follow God. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So we have God versus God. But the people answered him, not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Now, is this true? No, it's not. Elijah's the only public, publicly speaking, proclaiming prophet of the Lord, but we're going to find out something that God encourages Elijah with at the end of this story that's absolutely amazing. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. They're how many? How many did he ask for? Who didn't show up? Asherah's prophets didn't show up. They took the day off, apparently, right? So Elijah said to the people, I am alone left of the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Verse 23, Therefore let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. So that's what they did. The prophets of Baal go and they cut their bull up and they put it on the altar and they start chanting and they start shouting and they start making a scene. And one of the things that that the pagans of this day and age, I remember I told you that the sacrificial system, when you start off with grain and then you go to animals and then you go to your children, the next step was the blood of a priest because the blood of a priest was considered to be holier and more valuable and harder to get. So what the priests do is they start to cut themselves and they start to pour their blood on the altar. Anything they can do to get Baal to respond. At the end of verse 26, it says, But there was no voice, no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they had made. In verse 27, So it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. A little theological taunting here. Verse 28, So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and I love this phrase, and no one paid attention. Because I promise you, at the end of all days, at the end of all things, when time is no more, no one will pay attention to these little gods. 
because I promise you that is all will be left. The big G God, and that's it. Okay? So verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So, a lot, so the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs. I had to Google that one, right? It's about 20 gallons of water, of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces. Albert, got a question for you. So if I take a bull, and I cut a bull up into pieces, what do my hands look like? They're going to be a little bloody, right? Why are my hands going to be a little bloody? Because I cut the bull into pieces, yes. Because sin is messy, right? And if we're going to sacrifice something, when I have to sacrifice something, sin is messy. He laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and it filled the trench with water as well. So let's just think about something for a second. If you are in a time of drought, and you are trying to burn something, what would you not want to do right before you tried to burn it? Wet it down, right? This is a little obvious, I would think. So what do they do? They soak it. They soak it. They soak it so much that there's at least 20 gallons of water around the thing. Okay? Okay? And if you're wondering, we're in a drought, gym. Where'd they get the water? The sea was right there next to them. There's gobs of rivers that were very deep right there next to them. There were wells all over the place. The water table itself was still there. The water on the surface of the ground was not. Okay? So it's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's very simple if you know the geography. So verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and... Who? Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O God, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. So God is the hero of Elijah's prayer. Because right? I would be tempted at this point, God, please do something, because they're going to get me if you don't do something. <laughs> right? I'd be nervous as a tick. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the what? I have a problem with this word. What did they pour all over, all over this thing? Water. What do you not have when you pour water on dirt? You don't have dust. You have mud. It licked up the mud and turned everything else to dust. And then it ate the dust. So what kind of God consumes stones and dust? My God does. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah gave them a good tongue lashing. Right? No. You know what the law said to do with a prophet that was found to be untrue? They were to die immediately. Oh, okay. 450 died that day. So 
What happens next? Well, the drought ends. It rains, and Ahab runs home. He runs home to Mama, to Jezebel. So we get to 1 Kings 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that he had done and how that he had executed, how that Elijah had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Now, all right, guys, what message should Ahab have brought back home? We are going to serve Yahweh. We are going to serve the Lord. We are going to serve Jehovah. What message did he bring back home? They killed everybody. How beautiful, how beautiful would this story have been if Ahab had manned up and done what he was supposed to do and stood up to Jezebel, and he did not. So here's what Jezebel sends a word to Elijah. So let the gods do to, me, do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better from my, than my father's. The Bible trivia question for you. Who does this, what other prophet does this sound like? Sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? He's having a grand old pity party for himself. Now, he probably has a right to be a little concerned because Jezebel, who has gobs of resources at her disposal, has just said, I'm coming to get you. Okay? Verse 5, And as he lay and slept under the tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. So at this point, Elijah has been encouraged by ravens, a widow, and an angel. Pretty consistent theme from God that he's pretty creative when he wants to encourage us. Verse 6, Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Where is he at now? He's in the middle of nowhere. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back to him the second time. Oh, so just, just so we all are very, very crystal clear on our theology here. Who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? That's Jesus. Okay. He came back the second time. So what kind of God comes back for us the second time? That's pretty cool. And he said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And this to me is a, a strange statement because the journey from where he's going to go is about 100 miles. 100 miles would have taken less than a week, on foot, less than a week. So he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, you reckon God knew that he was going to wander around in this wilderness for 40 days? Perhaps. You reckon God knew what he needed before he was going to go wander around in this wilderness? Think about this. What kind of God prepares us for the wilderness before we go there? My God does. Verse 9, And he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Seems like a rational explanation, right? Verse 11, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. 
So it was when Elijah heard it, then he wrapped his face in a mantle. And this is the equivalent, guys, of either taking off your shoes or taking off your cap or bowing down because this is a symbol of respect, is that I am not worthy to look at what I am seeing right now. And went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? <clears throat> now, who in the New Testament liked to ask the exact same question over and over and over again? This guy named Jesus. He, and he would ask the question until he got the answer that he wanted because he's fishing for something here. And he said exactly the same words as the last time. So, all right, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you go, whoa, 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 Syria. Why are we anointing kings over Syria? Because all of the earth is under God's domain. And if God wants to use a pagan king to straighten out his children, he will do so. And this was a very public act, this anointing, to let everybody know you're supposed to be here. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, with a S-H, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Malahoah, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. What do you mean, in my place? I'm alone. I'm all by my little old self, right? It's one of the beautiful pieces of commentary I think I've ever read. It says, God teaches here that there is no such thing as a necessary man. Man, even in his best estate, is altogether vanity, but God is all in all. God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. That's pretty good, isn't it? I will be buried one day. Okay? That's the way this will work. And God will keep trucking right along. He won't miss a beat. He won't worry about it one second. He will keep trucking right along. And that is beautiful that we get to play a part in a story so big that while it is good for us to be involved, he doesn't need me. But I sure want to be used. Verse 17, It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what kind of God keeps 7,000 in reserve? My God does. And this was just to encourage Elijah, because he still has work to do. There are chapters more work that Elijah does before he turns this over to Elisha, and Elisha keeps going on. So what's the point? Well, instant obedience is what God wants every single time. Number two, God will accomplish his will in creative ways. He's not above using ravens and widows and angels. He's good with that. And God will sometimes be very patient with his servants. So what do I do with that? Well, obey immediately. Remember the kind of God that we serve and listen for the voice of God and be willing to act when it speaks. Because so often we will say, God, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign. And then there's this big obnoxious sign. Well, that's not the sign I wanted, right? No. When he says it, do it. It's very, very straightforward. It's hard, but it's very straightforward. So thank you for coming this morning. Uh, we will finish up this Fall of Israel five-week series next week. Uh, make sure your name is on the sheet in the middle of the page. Take a couple minutes to do prayer requests, and uh, God bless you. Thanks for coming. Happy Father's Day.